Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino's Security Confidential. Today, we have a very special guest, Samara Williams. Uh, we're honored to have her. Samara is currently the threat, uh, runs threat operations at Cardinal Health, and she is focused on proactive actions, defense and death improvement. She specializes in threat intelligence, vulnerability management, technical risk communications, as well as program design and development. That's quite a mouthful. But what <laughs> that, that, that's the cybersecurity side of her. But what people may not know is that she grew up in South Texas in a blended family and has a degree in cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And uh, she is very, very passionate about helping young people with STEM. And uh, she is treasurer of the International Consortium of Minority Cybersecurity Professionals. Yep. So thank you for joining the show today, Samara. Yeah, you're, wel you're welcome. And I'm super happy to be here. One, one more plug. I'm also treasurer and founding member of Empower Women of InfoSec. Oh, well. wonderful. That's a, Can yeah, you, uh, it's a great org. Great org. Can you uh, send us the web links for the organization and we'll make sure we include them in the show notes? I can definitely do that. I appreciate it. So <clears throat> Samara, tell us a little bit about your journey here. Growing up in South Texas mm -hmm. to Dublin, Ohio, which is the furthest thing from South Texas. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> yep. it's definitely different. It's definitely different. So. Um, I, I, I tell this story often because people ask me about it quite a bit. <clears throat> so, yeah, my both my parents are ex-military, right? So they retired at Lackland Air Force Base. That's in San Antonio, Texas. That's where I'm from. So uh, given plenty of OSINT out here as well. But if you try to fish me, I'll, I'll identify it. I promise I will. So anyway, um, <laughs> so they both retired San Antonio, Texas. Um, my mom is actually from uh, the New York area right so i grew up in the south but i grew up in an east coast household right so it was very different right uh, i mean and uh, <laughs> I, you know i i was thinking a new yorker going to mm -hmm. san antonio that that's yep. a cultural change if you it know. is I, it is so i don't know that i ever actually felt like i was from south texas it felt like i was there like i existed i lived there right um so when i got a little bit older and i was looking at you know kind of you know what i wanted to do with life i had a great opportunity to come up to columbus ohio um it's it is random uh, don't get me wrong i love columbus love columbus to death but when people think about where they're going to move they're not like oh columbus ohio but that's I'm, I'm not at I the did. top of their list yeah it's not at the top of the list it's just not but I did, at a previous employer, I used to travel up to Dayton, Ohio, right? And when I would travel there, I was like, you know what? This is really chill. I like it here, right? It's 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 still sort of a, you know, a city feel. Uh, or It's still a city, but a small town feel, right? And it's like underrated. And I really like that about most cities in Ohio. So that's, that's how I'm here. So... How did you, uh, you, uh, you had so many options as far as getting a degree. Why mm -hmm. cyber? Yeah. Why well, not just like sci uh, computer science or math or engineering? Uh, why cyber? Yeah. I, so I'll be, I'll be dead honest here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was a little bit of a lazy college student. Okay. So, um, <laughs> my main goal was to play basketball. That's what I wanted to do. So I went to a school where I could play basketball. 
Now, I went to this school and I played for a couple of years, right? It was great experience. I'd never take those back. But um, the I was I was doing a business computer information systems um, at that time, that degree. Okay. And that it didn't I didn't feel like it challenged me enough. I was a little bored, um, but I also knew I didn't want to do computer science or math or anything like crazy hard. So I went somewhere where I felt was like right in the middle and really appealed to me because I've got sort of this natural instincts of, you know, being super protective. Um, and with my mom being from New York, yeah. I grew up in South Texas, but still had a really good um, social and situational awareness that she kind of sort of instilled in me over the years. Um, so I feel like that really lended itself to the cybersecurity track. And that's why I, that's why I went with it. So let me ask you this, having now been in cybersecurity, mm -hmm. and I ask this of a lot of our guests, but do you think you need, uh, if, if there's a young person out there in high school right now considering a cybersecurity career, is a formal degreed education a necessity to be successful in the field? No, not at all. That's not even, that's not something I even bring up. I talk to high school kids, middle school kids. I just finished talking to a group of top scholars at UTSA, um, you know, with a, a wide variety of backgrounds. But yeah. I, t I basically, when I tell them what's needed for a cybersecurity degree, it's you or a career, it's usually um, passion, persistence, and resilience. If you got some of those things, and you, you skill up from a technical perspective, I think you're gonna do just fine. So we have, um, you're actually the second person to name those traits in that specific order. Really? Who was the first? Yeah, which is really, re really, really cool. Um, it was the, I wanna say, uh, the, I think a gentleman, the gentleman from L3. Hmm. Rob. And I just Rob Duhart? blank my, you know, not Rob Duhart. Oh. Rob's with Google. Yes. Um, I just, Ro Odin. Oh, I need to meet this, this person. Yeah, I believe it was him. But uh, you're the second person to state that. And, uh, you know, he, he had a similar background. He had very humble beginnings uh, in uh, Louisiana and mm. then uh, moved on. And now he's a architect and a fantastic one at that. Um, but that's good to know because cool. and, and, we, we don't want to, we want to make sure people don't be discouraged. If this is something that you want to do mm -hmm. and you don't have a degree, there'll be time to get that degree, uh, for certain positions, it may be required, uh, and certain companies are going to, depending on how you advance, it may affect you, but to be successful in the field, you don't need it. Yep. And I'm, I'm glad to hear you say the same thing what well, why do you think i'm sorry go ahead no i was just going to say if it makes anyone listening out there feel better too there are hiring managers other than me as well who are you know no longer really putting that even on job recs right um on job descriptions we're putting you know bachelor's degree or relevant experience and that relevant experience it's not just there for inclusive matters like we're serious so apply for that role even if you don't have the degree uh, it's great advice. We have uh, a lot of military veterans that work mm -hmm. with us and 
uh, they run into those situations and we're like, don't negotiate with yourself. If you've got, if you've been trained in the Air Force or the Army and you have a cybersecurity background, we would take you. Yeah, just <laughs> so, do it. Just do it. Now, just do it. What, why do you think um, there is such a lack of people going into STEM? I have my own obvious uh, answers for that, but I, I'd be very curious to hear your opinion of it. Why do you? And then let's do a second part of that: is why is it even in the minority communities that you have even fewer people going into it? Yeah, um, I think there is a preconceived notion about what you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to like when you come into a STEM sort of um, career, right? I actually don't really represent any of those things. <laughs> and I'm doing I'm doing great, I think. I personally think, right? So like I was actually just having a conversation about this yesterday because when I first got into um this this career path um and obviously started noting noticing serious differences between even, you know, my uh, the superficial part of me, the differences in me and you know my colleagues as well as personality-wise, um it it starts to make sense a little bit, you know. I'm not a huge Star Wars fan or Star Trek or, you know, Marvel or anything like that, right? I, I like martial arts movies and, you know, sports and all of this other stuff, right? But I think that, you know, some of the misconceptions about what the culture should be like keeps people from pursuing them, right? And then from a minority perspective, I personally, I believe it's a lack of representation. Okay. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, just to put my two cents in on it, mm -hmm. uh, and having gone through the education cycle all the way through, by training, I'm in the air, I'm an aerospace engineer. And um, I haven't practiced that in ages, but that's what I started life out as. I think children in schools are too often, they develop this notion or they're taught this notion. I'm going to use that word very specifically. They are taught that STEM, science and math and physics is hard. Mm. And you know, and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point. If I believe going into something that I'm not going to be, I'm not going to do well with it, or it's, it's too hard, I can guarantee you that you've already set the stage for the outcome of what's about to happen. Yeah. Right. And uh, that's something that has to do with our educational system. I, I think uh, it should inspire a sense of wonder in children. Mm. And if it inspires that sense of wonder, then children that are naturally curious, they're going to gravitate to whatever it is that they're curious about, whether that be a STEM career or that be music, be in the arts. It, it doesn't matter. But yeah. And I think that's missing, and I said it publicly. So I think, uh, well, you know what? I support you in that opinion, 100%. I, my, I think my only rebuttal is that I, I put a little bit more emphasis on parents and making sure that they expose their kids to a wide variety of interests as well, right? I don't, I don't necessarily think it's a, necessarily a teacher's job, but that's also because my mom exposed me to a lot of different things where she gave me the opportunity to say, you know, oh, I like that, or I don't think I like that, and didn't pressure me one way or the other. You know, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, it's a topic that's often not discussed in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. 
And I promised we weren't going to be controversial, but I guess we just let's do it. <laughs> we just broke that one. So, um, in uh, you know, growing up in an Asian household, so I can t- and when I say Asian, you know, uh, ethnicity, I'm I'm Indian origin, and uh, I can tell you that all of us from Asia, whether that be India, China, Japan, Korea, what have you, mm-hmm. uh, there's culturally a massive emphasis in the family on education, you know, it was uh, always promoted. And so I agree with you completely. I think parents have a ma- uh, a massive role to play there. Definitely. And if they provide that guidance and encouragement, um, I think we would have a lot more people going into some of these different areas and not, not going in, not doing it because they think it's hard. And that's right. the thing that bothers me. Right. Is I don't want to do it because that's just too hard. Or I'm no good at that. Well, you never gave it a try. So how do you know? Right. Yeah. Well, and, you know, to get even more granular, I was talking to a women's group not too not too long ago at a at a vendor uh, during like a lunch and learn. And we were just talking about, um, you know, parents and the uh, influence they have on their kids, especially their young females. Right. Um, when you buy them toys, are you only buying them toys fit for nurses or teachers or cooks or chefs? Are you, you know giving them toys that are like doctors and, you know, something different, right? Or or are you putting in their brain, you know, you can be a nurse, you can be a teacher, but that's about it, right? Like it's that exposure that really, um, and getting that, getting in their mind, right? That they have the support from their parents. doesn't matter what a lot of those people who are not so nice out in the world might say, because you know, right? you know yourself that you're capable of it. And I think that speaks volumes as well. It absolutely does. And I think uh, toy manufacturers, if you're listening, you need to put some cybersecurity toys. No kidding. No kidding. There's no like, I think the closest thing is that you can buy a raspberry Pi Mm -hmm. and, and, (laughs) and get your kid involved with hacking, but we could use some more. Well, so I think speaking- this is this is an idea though that we could have here, and you're gonna have to cut me in on it. Don't take it, but there needs to be like a board game, maybe something like a Battleship, but instead it's a firewall, right? And well, you know, a- somebody's an adversary, the other person's the defender. Uh, Samara, why don't you <laughs> build it, and we'll, let's see if we can get somebody to publish it. If nothing else, it would be a great gag gift. We can put it on our website. Yep. And we'll donate it to down. the uh, International uh, Wildlife Fund or something. You know, give it uh, help save rhinos. That sounds good. That sounds good. <laughs> that would be great. So let's, uh, you know, it's board games. I'm sure there were a lot played in the pandemic, but it, it brought to the mind, you know, um, in your case, professionally building a team in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. How did that experience change or evolve over the last year? Yeah, well, you know, something that uh, I think is is important to note is that I am a new manager as well, learning how to manage during a pandemic and learning how to manage a full-time remote team, right? Um, So on one hand, it was extremely challenging. On the other hand, I was able to really reach a wider audience um, because I offered full-time remote positions. So... I am proud to say that I have a very diverse team. Everybody, everybody has a different skill set. Everybody has a different background. But the key thing that I used 
during this pandemic to build relationships and and literally recruit myself was Twitter, social media. Really? Yep. Yep. So I'm very open and honest on Twitter. I'm very much myself. Um, and I think that that representation also brought more people to me and felt more open with me. Now I got to open a Twitter account. Tw Twitter's where it's at. You know, I honestly didn't I even did. open it until October. Really? <laughs> I had a content. I I, yeah. Yeah. Got to get out there. I I never thought that there's a lot of people that are following it, but apparently uh, there are quite a few people in professional in a professional setting that that mm -hmm. are following it. And uh, I think you just described if it helped you, then something worth looking into here. Most definitely. Yep. I found my technical lead on Twitter. He and I work incredibly well together. It gave us the opportunity to get to know each other throughout the interview process, as opposed to it being so formal. And I was able to really be comfortable with the decision I made, as well as, um, you know, some of the other people on the team. That's where that's where we connected. That's where we built trust initially, as opposed to, um, you know, jumping right in. You don't know who your manager is. Right. Um, you're learning how to work together. At least we started with some sort of rapport and we're continuing to building, continuing to build on it. Was there. Uh, in this experience of building out this remote team, mm -hmm. was there, could you say something uh, very positive or a gift that maybe COVID gave Definitely. that you think is going to be permanent mm -hmm. now in the I, workspace? <laughs> I have a lot of opinions <laughs> on this subject. Please. I, will, I won't go through I all of them. Hear I them. go through all of them. So, yeah. so 2020 as a whole. Right. Well, 2021 as well, because it's just 2020 with like a, some lipstick and eyeliner on. OK, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 2020 as a whole opens, I think, opened at a lot of people's eyes. Right. I was able to see some close friends, some mentors, other people in a different light. Right. I was able to start to identify, you know, some people who uh, I may or may not want to continue having relationships with. I think that's one thing COVID has done really well for me. Um, you know, I think maybe for a second there, my circle was getting a little too big and it's, it's coming down a little bit more, that trusted circle, right? Um, <clears throat> I think from a work perspective, it's taught us, um, and I, I'm just speaking from experience and like some of my team as well, but it's increased our sense of empathy and like building a team that is so open and raw with one another and seeing how empathetic and supportive we can be of one another and willingly picking up each other's slack and not expecting anything in return couldn't be happier. And I think COVID it sounds did like that. you picked a lot of A players to make that happen. <laughs> yeah. I, I try. I also inherited A players, which I'm incredibly lucky. So Because what you're describing is incredibly rare. Mm -hmm. um, and you really have to build a very strong team bonding environment to uh, have that kind of an outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't, I think it's a lot of it is just being open and vulnerable and also your team being open and not being afraid to be vulnerable. I'm not going to say everyone on my team is vulnerable. Um, some people are more empathetic than others. Right. Mm -hmm. But it, it, we don't reject it. I think is that that's the most important. We don't reject, we don't shame that. That's where it's at. 
Well, that's very unique because when I think of Cardinal Health, I'm thinking Megacorp, and mm. and, and it's going to have a uh, Megacorp environment and a, a, and culture. And what you're describing is uh, some attributes that I would not have assigned. Yeah, I I think I I think I got a little lucky. I'll say that because I'm not about to sit here and say Cardinal's not a mega megacorp, but I will say that our leaders are very good about the uh, values and the behaviors that we represent okay. within Cardinal. I think there is a a serious sense of purpose that's coming from the top that allows us to be our authentic selves, and I think that's what's paramount. That's excellent. Mm -hmm. And so they've managed to, that's the culture of the company that they've set then. Yeah, I would say, especially in the cybersecurity department. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit about vulnerability and risk management. With uh, COVID coming along and everybody going remote, uh, mm -hmm. we saw a lot of our clients getting a massive uptick in the number of attempts, whether it was phishing attempts, mm -hmm. uh, it was people trying to uh, find their way into their system by some odd technique, which I won't mm -hmm. mention right now as people want to go play with them. But sure. they, they, uh, they, we saw basically, in, of all the threat vectors, we saw a lot of them being used and used more often. Mm -hmm. Was that your experience or... Did you guys see something different? And no, did you change I, your strategy? So, well, I, I brand new team, so brand new strategy, right? Um, okay. I think there was maybe not a brand new strategy, I shouldn't say, but more of an emphasis on previous strategies. So uh, my team, uh, what we what we tend to focus on, um, well, while our main partner is incident response, which is just kind of naturally a reactive action, right? Something's happened, we need to do something about it. We are primarily focused on the proactive aspect. How can we get in front of these vulnerabilities? What are threat actors doing? How can we defend better against them? Things of that nature. So when COVID started happening, yeah, there was definitely uptick in activity. Um, but I think what, what ended up happening, because it, it at Cardinal Health, it, it's very easy to get overwhelmed, right? With the amount of um, opportunity, right? Um, you know, the targeting involved, for a healthcare organization that also does manufacturing, logistics, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, right? right. So uh, it's very important to prioritize. So I think there's something beautiful in putting a team together that is threat intelligence and vulnerability management. Because in threat intelligence, this is where you know the ins and outs of your org. You know what's important to your, your business leaders, right? It's that visibility up. Vulnerability management is where you really know the, the inner workings the assets that you have, the vulnerabilities on them, the criticality of those vulnerabilities, when you marry those two together and you have sort of these industry standard understanding of what's um, dangerous, as well as this contextual information that helps to prioritize based on what's important to the business, you put those two things together and you have an action plan. And that's basically what we've really dove into. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. So what you've defined is building a defense in depth strategy based off of risks, risks that are material to the operations of the company. Mm -hmm. Right. And are you now, do you use any risk framework to do this or have you done this exactly as you described? So 
the risk management team does use a risk framework. I don't, I don't believe I can actually say which one I'm not. It, it is an industry standard risk framework okay. is what I'll That's say. Fine. <laughs> but our team has actually sort of created a, um, we are attempting to create a customized risk methodology more so than a framework where we try to be as objective as possible based on um, sophistication of threat actors, impact to our organization, exploitation, the difficulty of that, current controls that we have in place um, so that we can really come to a final decision that is then tied to some sort of remediation plan and we stick to it. So there's no, oh, I feel like this is more important than the other. It should be cut and dry. This is what it said. This is the remediation plan. See, uh, you're already uh, better than 99.9% of the companies out there in stating that. Because oh, we haven't perfected it. We haven't perfected it. <laughs> uh, a lot of a lot of companies struggle with it, and I, and we've seen you know companies of some very large scale. When you ask them what are what is it that you're defending? What is what are the assets that are critical to the protection of the revenue stream? of the company, depending on who you ask, you get very different answers. Very few people are um, taking a look at it as you have and saying, mm. you know what, let's look at it, both sides of this, and let's marry them together. And that's the right answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, the breaking down of the silo between Intel and VM, I think that's what's gorgeous about it. Now, as the team continues to grow, will there be some sort of separation in teams? Yes, but there does that doesn't mean that a silo needs to be created as a result. It's I think that's that's another thing I'm super passionate about. I know we talked about program and process or uh, process design, but it's also process and program integration. How can these different teams work together and make each other better? That's what I love to see. Are there um... As you've done these integrations, are there some metrics that you've put in place by which you measure that you think we, are absolutely critical? Yes. So um, I, we're currently in the process of devising these metrics, but there's one I, I can share. Um, I can't get too much in the weeds of it, I, I don't think, but um, there are a lot of moving parts at Cardinal, right? So with everything that I just mentioned about Threat actor activity, you know, doing some threat modeling as well as part of our sort of scope. And then um, understanding our internal, um, you know, weaknesses as far as our assets go. If we can have, uh, I'm about to say something, it, it's, it's not too controversial, but if we can have an accurate asset management <laughs> process, then maybe we devise a, a, a um, risk rating per business unit and we can prioritize from there so that is something that i would like to eventually get to um, where we can assign a certain risk to a certain business unit application process um, and start to keep those leaders accountable and um, help them to understand the importance of security as well that sounds like federated security to me yeah <laughs> give it i don't i don't i try not to label too many things um, because then that makes, that means I, you know, I have to be successful, but, um, I'm definitely trying shooting for the moon, I think no, in a lot no, of cases. That's, that's, that's a very, uh, 
that's a very cool way to do it. You know, look at all the business units, look at their asset base and see mm -hmm. where the vulnerabilities are maximum relative to the threat intel that you're getting and what mm -hmm. you're defending against and prioritize that way. I think see well, that little nugget there maybe mm -hmm. can help a lot of listeners out that they can oh, look well, at it across. I'll drop another there. nugget for you guys then because I just, uh, and speaking of people coming from different backgrounds, I just hired on somebody who has a background in financial risk and okay. recently going through different certifications for cybersecurity. So thinking of that, I am also attempting in that same vein to start to think about once we have built this custom standard risk methodology, is there a way to tie it to financial loss? So can we tie risk to a certain business unit and say, if this happens, or if we put this control in place to block this sort of activity, we can save the company X amount of dollars. We could save them from X amount of dollars of loss. That, again, I am very, I'm a very ambitious person. <laughs> so, but we're, we're, we're trekking ahead. We've got the goal. Uh, you know what? And uh, you're in Columbus. So uh, it's where the whole fair approach was invented. And uh, I'm sure you're uh, the person you hired probably knows about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can do a lot of quantitative analysis exactly to get you to the specific financial loss. Number. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That that's awesome. That That's really, really good. What about, so threat Intel, you know, one mm -hmm. thing I get from our guys is there. So we get a lot of threat intelligence from a lot of different places. Mm -hmm. The important thing, do you have a particular way that you make it actionable? That's you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's a great question. Um, so there's a few ways I think there that you can make uh, threat intelligence actionable. And it is um, one, obviously, trying different sources, keeping vendor bias out of it, which is a big thing in threat intelligence. Um, really looking at it from a unbiased scope, assigning confidence levels as well to the information. So if you actually can validate this intelligence source, that should raise its confidence level source confidence. Um, and then as well as, um, oh, I just lost it. I had it and I lost it. Um, oh, the context of what's important to your company, obviously, right? That's a big one. Um, yeah. And then feedback, that feedback loop. If you have delivered intelligence to a partner and they have give, they've given you feedback that says, fantastic, we use this to implement this. We've we've blocked this based on that, um, and they've validated that your intel is actionable. Then, I think you're golden at that point, right? And you can kind of continue to take that same cadence. But feedback is tough to receive sometimes. I think, <laughs> you know. But what's important is that if you get that feedback, it's negative. Your intelligence didn't really do anything. It's time to pivot. You know, be adaptable. That's. Uh, again, I hope the listeners can leverage that information, some of their own practices. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's very, very sound guidance. Um, when, when you're looking at um, cyber threats, one, there's a couple parts to this question mm -hmm. here. The first thing is, how do you involve your end users in mm -hmm. your cyber threat strategy? That goes beyond phishing. So, wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. Involving that's the end a, user. Yeah, that's a, that's a big the, question. <laughs> it is. And I yeah. ask it very intentionally. Mm -hmm. um, before I, I give my opinion, I'd love to hear yours. <laughs> yeah. Involving the end user. So with as, wow. So I think there's a, a few ways that we do that. Um, um, because when I think of the end users, not only am I sort of including Cardinal Health employees, but I'm also including subsidies, right? Yep. Third-party vendors, customers, because now with supply chain attacks on the rise, they are practically your end user at this point, right? Because it can lead yep. to your company. Yep. So the way that <laughs> the way that I involve them in our strategy, and this is not necessarily some super profound, but I uh, I tend to see and identify ambassadors in different areas of cybersecurity. And, you know, I think there are actual companies that have formal security ambassador programs, but I think through partnerships, right? Keeping up with people, um, having those, um, especially from a threat intelligence standpoint, having those connections within the business, within EIT and within your own cybersecurity department, you have these ambassadors who you can go to, to help to spread the word right? Yep. Cybersecurity being preached by cybersecurity is rarely productive. An end exactly. user needs to hear it from another end user, right? Yep. So there's my, that, that, that's, that was a really good question. Um, I thought I was going to have, you know, a $1 answer to a million dollar question, but I think I'm, I think <laughs> I made it to like a hundred K. You did really well. You know, we, we, um, we preach at Dark Rhino, we preach that the biggest cybersecurity asset a company has are its end users, in fact. Mm -hmm. and, and we, when we make that statement, we're making it from the position of work when you're in, instilling policies that are related to cybersecurity on user behavior. We often see companies put mandates in place or mm. they'll say, you will not do this or thou shall do this. Right they rarely work and the reason they rarely work is that the end user doesn't know the why and mm -hmm. what we mm. have found is if most people are reasonable there's always exceptions there's always unreasonable people out there but they, we can't help them that this doesn't apply to them sure. but for the for those that are reasonable when you explain the why to certain things mm -hmm. like don't access the company email from an open network at Starbucks or Target. You know, don't don't go and send a, a secure mail uh, from your hotel unless you're VPN in. Or I'm just right. making up policies here. Sure. If we explain the whys behind those things, people are like, oh, I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. And then the compliance levels go way up, and that reduces the threat surface. It yeah. Makes the company a heck of a lot safer. Absolutely. And I think policy is a another underrated aspect of cybersecurity that doesn't necessarily need a cybersecurity person. I think what it needs is a little bit of a salesperson, depending on how the policy yes. <laughs> policy team is structured, <laughs> because you can have technical counsels, right, that help you with those intricate details and help you with the why. But that selling point and the way that it's structured, that's that's how you're going to get it to people. That's how they're going to read it. So uh, let me ask you this, with mm -hmm. you building out a fresh team here, 
how did you handle mentorship? Typically, there's a lot of mentorship in cybersecurity to get somebody up the curve to be operational. Um, yeah. What was your approach to that? Well, um, I don't necessarily know if this is the right answer or not, but I think it's worked for me so far. But I, when I was interviewing, right, because I, I made a lot of relationships on social media, um, and we're still, you know, we're still in contact and everything like that. Um, but I'm very open, transparent, honest about everything, right? So when um, when I'm interviewing people, and you know, everybody asks, well, oh, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Da, da, da. When I ask, what are the areas for improvement? Because I don't actually believe in, in weaknesses, but what are your areas for improvement? I did not. Um, I did not hire anyone. I thought. I couldn't help, right? So if they have an area of, of improvement that I probably either have the same one and you know I haven't perfected it yet, or it felt like it wasn't something that I could necessarily mentor or help them improve, then I I didn't I didn't really pursue them. And I think that some people would say there's a risk in that, right? Losing losing solid talent, um, but actually I think people what people tend to do is they hire redundant talent, right? Uh, people who have similar skill sets already. Sure. Whereas I look at it as um, who has a different skill set, who is a culture ad, who can I help in this people leadership position that I take extremely seriously. So having that, with that being said, when they come in, I know what those areas for improvement are. I know what we're working towards. I can start to build some sort of, you know, mentorship framework or, you know, keep those mental flags in my head. And I also believe in immediate, honest feedback, right? And the negative stuff, maybe I, maybe it's not as immediate, but when it comes to the positive reinforcement, because that's, that's generally what happens, right? In those areas of improvement, you need to see what you're doing positively so you can continue to yes. improve instead of being called out on what's bad. So absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, a lot, most people react to the positive reinforcement way better than negative. Right. Right. You know, the negative just kind of, it becomes personal and it, it sometimes hurtful unnecessarily. So. Right. right. Yeah. I've, I've got, um, I've got a, a really good friend of mine. Um, he, he was a friend before I became his manager. So it was an interesting dynamic shift, but we've really, we've kept the friendship going as well as having this mentor manager friendship. Um, he's got issues with confidence. As a result, it makes him some sort of a perfectionist where he needs the doc document to be as close to perfect as possible. Otherwise, he will not be confident, right? Over time, because he came from uh, incident response background to an intel background, you can't be a perfectionist in intel because the information has to get out, right? right? Otherwise, it's old. So I'm seeing over time that he's able to get that information out quicker because he's he's worried about it being perfect a little bit less. So I'm always quick to give him that positive feedback and that so he can continue that behavior as opposed to stop some sort of negative behavior. Yeah. Well, who was it? I think it was General Patton who said something to the effect of a good plan executed today is better than a perfect plan executed tomorrow. Yeah, most definitely. And that's a that, little bit about threaded. That, yeah, that's that's Intel in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. In, a, in a nutshell. So mentorship, um, I know we're coming up here on the hour. I, I wanted to give, give you a chance here to plug some of the organizations that you may be working with. Yeah. Any mentorship uh, that you might be doing with them or things you want to let our listeners know about that are relevant for you. Please 
take this time to educate all of us. Yeah, that's, you know, this is a topic I talk on quite a bit because I have, you know, entire sort of methodology on mentorship that I could definitely get into. You might have to invite me back though. For ah, that. We're going to have to get you back. <laughs> we'll you we'll, we'll bribe you back. with, uh, what, we're already going to do a t-shirt and a yep. hoodie and whatnot. We're going to have to bribe you with something else now. I think, you know, I could use some more <laughs> socks. I love socks. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah. So <laughs> as far as these organizations go, so ICMCP, the International Consortium of Minority Cybersecurity Professionals, is focused a lot on the transition from um, one sort of path to the cybersecurity path, whether that be from college, whether you're already in a cybersecurity degree, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, right? You're moving into cybersecurity, right? Because we, we were trying to get more diverse individuals into that space. Um, Empower Women of InfoSec is an organization focused primarily on, on women, right? Getting more women into cybersecurity, more women of color into cybersecurity, things of that nature. And both have um, similar structures uh, where Empower Women of, of Cybersecurity focused primarily on um, scholarships for females and up-and-coming females, as well as charitable efforts. So it's a big part that it's a big aspect that I'm all about because I don't, I feel like information security organizations tend to focus on the information security community. I think we can be information security organization that focuses on the community as a whole, right? Doesn't necessarily need to be our own community. So that's, those are two aspects I really enjoy about that org. ICMCP is a much broader. So I'm just a part of the Columbus chapter but it's actually, you know, international, like the name suggests. Right. And there's a whole, they have a variety of programs from mentorship to scholarship to, you know, sponsors and programs, training, everything like that. So really getting ramped up and really trying to make a difference in the cybersecurity space, because if we don't look like our threat actors, we're never going to be able to defend against them. You're Plain absolutely simple. right. Now, some of these scholarships that you have available through mm -hmm. both organizations, are they can they be found on their website or is there they a can. special process? Yeah, so oh, they um, can. yeah, and I think what's important is to uh, keep track of LinkedIn and Twitter um, and, and follow what the activity is there because we just, uh, Empower Women of InfoSec, we just awarded some scholarships and we will be in um, the coming months pretty soon here. So um, the... The application is on the website, but when the scholarship period is actually open, we'll announce on on social media. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, next time you do that announcement, uh, we'll look out for it. But if we miss it, just uh, drop us a note and we'll put a little uh, thing up on our front page on our website. Yeah. Let people know, hey, if you're interested in applying for scholarships, you know, again, uh, it might help somebody uh, and that is really important to us. Absolutely. And I'm, I am accepting a couple of new mentees as well. So happy to help anyone on the horn here listening. If you want to reach out. Well, Samara, we'll put those links in the show notes. In fact, if you could please send them to me, uh, Most I'll follow definitely. up with an email and just send those to me. We'll make sure that they are in the show notes. So uh, people have an easy place to go and just click on them and, and they can get that. That's fabulous work. You also did a TED Talk, didn't you? I did. I did. I did a TEDx Talk in uh, 2019. Wow. November of 2019. That was a long time ago. Uh, it was a five-minute TED Talk about 
750, 800 people. Um, it was a lot of fun. I had determined early on that I needed to curse because if I didn't curse, I wasn't going to get their attention. And it worked. So <laughs> keep your shit safe. That's what it's called. Can, uh, it's out there on YouTube. <laughs> I will put a link to that as well. Well, we're at the hour here, and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time, Samara. And we hope to get you back. Uh, there's so we only whenever. scratched the surface yes. on these topics. There's so many questions I have, and we just we're out of time. But really appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Like I said, just let me know, and I'll be back. No problem. Sounds great. Alrighty. Thank you.